You're listening to Radio Free Satan. Enjoy the show. I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I'm your host, Adam Campbell. It is great to have you. It is January 29th, and I've got a great show for you this week. Before I start, it is the fifth week of January, which is a little odd. We're going to get through it. The fifth week of January, all of January, I said I've been going to be talking about Radio Free Satan, and I'm going to continue that today. Radio Free Satan brings you quality content for free. But they still have bills to pay. And though Witch Tiberia 9 is amazing about paying the bills on time and picking up the slack when she has to, which is most of the time, I think it's incumbent upon you, the audience, to pitch in what you can when you can. You're not just getting music or commentary at Radio Free Satan. You're getting a satanic perspective. You're getting a specific demographic. You're getting targeted content. This isn't like a radio dial where you turn it on and just random music is played. The DJs spend a serious amount of time out of their weeks creating the format, and presenting it in this specific manner. The DJs aren't getting paid. All that is donated goes straight to paying the artists that the DJs are presenting to you. We look at life in a specific way. I mean, Satanists really have that third perspective that they target. And I wouldn't even say target. It's just that third perspective that they have, they sort of live in. We know when... Someone creates a specific piece, whether that's a painting or whether that's music, a piece of writing. We know that that artist does it because of the passion that's within them. They present it in the manner that is fitting for them. And it's only fair that they get a little piece for that. Quite often you find that artists don't have a second job. They don't have a secondary source of income. Well, when Radio Free Satan pays their bills, that's what they're paying into. They're they're telling the artist that they appreciate the quality of work that they're putting into the piece that the individual DJs are putting together and presenting to you. And that because of that appreciation, they're giving them a little bit of scrilla, a little cash in hand, to ensure that they can continue doing it. Same thing with Radio Free Satan. Radio Free Satan has to pay the bills in order to keep going. And yes, it is entirely possible that we may have a world without Radio Free Satan in it. But would it be as rich? Would it be as vibrant? I mean, how far does Potomatic really go? 
where can you go anywhere else on the web and get content delivered targeted to you specifically? I mean, let's be honest. Part of the good thing about being a Satanist and, and, and part of the the wonder about traveling that left-hand path is that there's not a world full of people like you. You're very different. Powerful. To have content delivered specifically to you, well, that's rare. It's very rare. I don't know of anywhere else on the web that can deliver it like Radio Free Satan does and will. Do what you can. Donate $10. Donate $20. Donate $50. It means less than, I don't know, a cable bill to you. But it means a whole hell of a lot to Radio Free Satan. It keeps it going. We need it to keep going. We need Radio Free Satan. And I'll tell you what. For helping keeping it going... For $10, I'm going to give you the first track from Black House Blues. That's right. Free. You donate $20, I'm going to give you an ebook. My children's book, How Crow Got a Scare Back. And if you donate $50, I'm going to give you a $0.09 cents t-shirt that isn't even available for purchase yet. Very rare. May not mean a lot to you, but it means a lot to Radio Free Satan. So if you can, donate. This week, like I said before, I do have a really great show for you. Um, there's been some talk uh, in some social networks that I kind of want to discuss in the show. So in this Devil's Advocate, I'm going to be talking about, is the, uh, is the Church of Satan needed? An infernal informant, New Jersey gay marriage supporters should boycott referendum. And Afghan President Hamid Karzai plans talks with Taliban. In the Creature Feature, I'm going to be talking with Nunaya Sema about her inclusion to Lilith Awakened. And this is going to wrap it up for, well, all of the Lilith Awakened-centric interviews I've planned. Lilith Awakened is a book that talks about women who have struggled through adversity and overcome it. With the strength of Satanism, the strength of themselves, the magical gods that they are, they have stood up against adversity and denied its strength and its influence upon them. Satanism is one of those rare religions that celebrates the power of self and the power of woman. Truly. That's one of the things I love about it. And I do have a Bizarre the Bizarre, though I'm not entirely sure if I'm going to get time to uh, go over it. Let me tell you a little, a little bit something about this um, Lilith Awaken interview that I'm, I'm delivering you this week. I went into it planning on talking specifically about uh, her article with Lilith Awakened, and I came out of it actually talking more about magic and magical theory. I cut out about half of the conversation we had, and the interview's still about 35 minutes, maybe a little more. And the part that I cut out, well, I'm going to be giving to you 
again, uh, just like I do with all of my interviews, through Nine Cents Interviews RSS feed, which can be found at ninecentspodcast.com, or you can go to any of the social networking sites. At the first of the month, I present a new uncut interview uh, with a past interviewee. Now, because I do a weekly podcast, and because I almost every single week have a new person I interview, the chances of uh, me getting to uh, Nanaya's specific interview, well, it's going to take a while. However, I do have a lot of other great past guests that I'm not sure everyone has heard yet. So check out Nine Cents Interviews if you can, because there is a lot of solid quality interviews located therein. And like I said, this interview that I did, uh, yeah, we do talk about Loth Awakened, which is uh, powerful and uh, actually a really good message. Um, but, you know, all, all the stuff that I cut out is going to be perfect for the Greater Magic episode that I do every year. Now, last year I had a panel of gentlemen, of warlocks, of, of reverends, of uh, powerful satanic ritualists. Well, this year, I think I'm going to be focusing on the uh, witches, the satanic women. I'm going to get a different take, a different sex's take. I mean, Anton LaVey wrote an entire book, The Satanic Witch, devoted to that female sorceress out there. Though men can glean a lot of quality information from it, very actually powerful and important, potent information from it, uh, it really empowers women. I want to touch on that a little bit. So if you're a satanic witch, and you want to be included in this round table of sorts, it's going to be in ten months. <laughs> I mean, in October, so what, nine months now? Uh, it's going to be a while. But reach out to me, let me know. And, that's right, I'm going to even bring it up now. If you have questions, I do still have a lot left over from last year, but if you have questions that are centric around a female, a woman, a satanic witch's um, area of authority. Send them to me. I'm going to start compiling them now. I've got a lot of great things down the road here. Um, Black House Blues is one of them. I'm looking forward to a lot. Um, I've been getting a lot of great response from those who have heard the first track that we're ready to put out here. Um, And I've got a lot of other things in the work as well. Nine Cents itself is going to be going through some metamorphosis. Uh, I'm going to continue this weekly podcast, and I hope to present some quality interviews. Um, but really, this show in, in its entirety is based around opinion. You know, It's just sort of my political um, and informational take on the world. So I'd like to sort of take Nine Cents and broaden its scope a little bit. With that vague notion out there. Keep it in mind. If you appreciate what I do, I hope you're going to appreciate what I'm going to be giving to you in the future. Uh, How about we stop babbling and we get into the show, shall we? The Devil's Advocate starts right now. Say why bother? How you done? Great. Let's cut the bullshit and get real. Why this purity you feel about evil? 
For Christ's sake, why? Don't lie to me. I guess, Father. You gotta feel that old nick in your soul. And it becomes clear. Like it did for me. The first time. That's when I realized my one true calling in life. And what's that? Shit, man. <laughs> I'm a born devil's advocate. Welcome to the Devil's Advocate. I'm a Satanist. I'm a member of the Church of Satan. But I do not speak for the Church of Satan. That is all. Is the Church of Satan needed? Certainly, if you're not a member, this means next to nothing to you. But for those of us who are, who went out of our way to declare our alliance with the philosophy. I mean, anyone can be born a Satanist. Uh, there are a small fraction of humanity that are. And of that populace, a smaller fraction seek out those of like mind, stumble across the organization of the Church of Satan and join the Church of Satan. Now, in every single interview I do with known Satanists, I ask why you joined the organization. And invariably the answer is along the lines of I wanted to play I wanted to pay tribute to the philosophy that Anton LaVey created. I wanted to align myself with those of like mind. But I think the Church of Satan is a little bit more than that. I know in some interviews, I've had interviewees talk about the TOV. Um, I've edited some of that really because it's not really on topic to what the interview is supposed to be about. And then I release those unedited versions. Um, but I, I don't think I've ever talked to anyone that is really expounded on the idea of what this, the Church of Satan means to them. Let me tell you what it means to me. I joined the Church of Satan um, in 97 or 98. I was in uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky at the time, serving my country. And I did it uh, not because I wanted to connect with other people, I'd never met another Satanist at that point. I never even thought about meeting another Satanist. And quite honestly, the internet was so young at that point, I never tried to reach out to any other Satanist. So it wasn't like it was for the community. I felt like I had to. Because that's who I was. I mean, as a, as a human being... Going through your life as a Satanist can actually be kind of tough if, you know, depending on the, the circumstances. There's no one else like you. The ideas that you hold are at best foreign and at worst um, aggressive and treated with um, hatred. They cause fighting with family. 
in some cases. Um, outright vile aggression through society itself in others. But damned all that, because I knew what I was, and I wanted to... I wanted to be a part of what it meant. The Church of Satan as a structure, as an organization, is not a way, it's not a means to an end. All right, It's not a way to become something that you aren't yet or that you strive to be. It's not a, a club that you pay dues into so that you can hobnob with other individuals of like mind. It's an organization that defines truth of what you are. And that despite those, and there are many, who intentionally spread misinformation, intentionally misrepresent what we are, what Satanism is. It is the lone candle in the darkness. It is the lighthouse on the stormy shore that lets everyone know what's real and what's not real. The truth, not only of human motivation, but of direction, too. I always find it interesting when I, I meet someone and, and they say that, you know, the Church of Satan is a great philosophy, um, but something else gave me direction. Well, to me, that's foreign. And this is why I've never joined any other organization. Because the Church of Satan, it it never gave me direction. It It told me what I was. It explained it. It explained the absurdity of, of reality in the world that I live in. And then it told me to do something with my life. It wasn't that, you know, use this tool in order to succeed. It, it didn't give you a road map. That was, was what was amazing about it. it. It told me what I was. And in that, I found what I needed to succeed. I don't need a mentor. I never did. Satanism doesn't give you that. It doesn't try to. It doesn't want to. All that you need is within yourself already. That's what's amazing about it. And this idea that the church of Satan doesn't need to exist for Satanism to survive, well, that may be the case. But what about all the other Satanists that are coming up? I never had a website when I first got into Satanism and when I, I first realized what I was and I first looked for others of like mind. It wasn't out there. The internet was really young. It didn't really exist. Now we have a website. Now we have a, a mutually exclusive forums. We have social networking sites of like-minded individuals that connect with each other, that, that communicate, share ideas. Satanism has evolved in that its members' way of communicating has evolved. 
but the religion itself, the philosophy, the organization never has. And what's amazing about it is it never needs to. It, it never has needed to, and it never will need to. And that's because what Satanism is, is not dependent on error. It's not dependent on what's popular. And that's why Satanism is real. Because it doesn't rely on, on fads or current ideas or notions. It relies on reality, human nature. And until there's such a time when there's no more humans, Satanism will always be around. But it is nice to have an organization there. Look, I came into Satanism when Anton LaVey was still leading it, when he, when he was still the, the high priest. I think Anton LaVey will never be replaced in the way that he created, that, that he defined, and the directions that he took Satanism in. But no one's looking to take over what he did. And Peter H. Gilmore took the reins of the Church of Satan and he continued it in a professional, direct, honest way. And I know when it happened at the time, there was a lot of dissent. There was a lot of arguments. Um, but those were from people who didn't know, didn't fully understand. And still, they're out there, those pseudos. That are convinced that this is some anti-Christian movement. It has nothing to do with that. It never has. I'm proud to call Peter H. McGilmore my high priest. I'm proud of the job that he is doing representing the Church of Satan as an organization. I'm very proud of the structure that the Church of Satan is. And in the manner that they have moved with the time and continued the most important organization that is the Church of Satan. There's a lot of us out there that may not have been able to come to terms with what we are if it wasn't for the Church of Satan. It is necessary. And whether it comes in the form of a book or a website podcast in this particular case it doesn't matter it has to be there because we are here and that's it some of us love to be isolated some of us love to be alone others of us love to socialize when we feel the need Satanism will always be out there and it will always need a public face because without that public face, there's nothing to deny the lies that the pseudos and the Christians continually try to force down the public's throats. And it could take form of legislation that we're fighting against. And that's why it's so important. Because individual freedoms are dependent on movements, on philosophies, on religion that is... Satanism. That's my soapbox. I absolutely think the Church of Satan is necessary. It will always be necessary. And no one, I, do, I truly do not think no one could have done such a stand-up, amazing job 
since Anton LaVey, like Peter H. Gilmore has. So, if you haven't yet, uh, maybe uh, take two minutes. Email the Church of Satan and say thank you. Thank you for representing what I am. Because in a lot of cases, you're not doing it yourself. He is. Think about it. Uh, let's go ahead and move on to the Infernal Informant. Listen up, listen up. Hey, y'all, Good news. There's no devil. Bad news. Else, no heaven. There's nothing to see. I'm your Infernal Informant. Hi, this is NewJersey.com. New Jersey gay marriage supporters should boycott referendum. Published January 29th, Sunday. By Joseph R. Fitzgerald. On Tuesday, Governor Chris Christie stated once again he would veto any legislation that would authorize gay marriage in the Garden State. He added that gay marriage is such an important issue, it should be included on November's ballot as a constitutional amendment or as a statewide referendum. The latter, Christie argued, would be the most democratic process for allowing voters to decide what's right for the state when it comes to marriage equality. The 1963 referendum in Cambridge, Maryland, serves as an excellent case study on the subject of voting on a minority group's rights and how citizens can respond to that political process. Cambridge experienced a human rights struggle when local black activists, led by Gloria Richardson, forced Cambridge's white community to confront its racial caste system, which included segregation of public accommodations. Cambridge's government desegregated these public accommodations by passing an amendment to the city charter. Quickly thereafter, local white voters used a referendum to challenge the amendment. The white electorate was split on whether to support or defeat the amendment. Some chose to support it because it was good for business, and it was morally and politically right to do. On the other hand, racial segregationists worked to defeat the amendment because they believed it would eliminate business owners' constitutional right to free association by ending their ability to choose their customers. More than a few of these segregationists had an additional reason for opposing the amendment. They believed the Bible justified racial segregation. Huh. Yeah, I think I've heard that before. Black voters responded to the referendum either by going to the polls and voting to uphold the amendment or by refusing to vote at all. Gloria Richardson was one of the voters who boycotted the vote. She based her rationale on democratic principle and the real political consequences for a minority group that participates in the referendum initiated by a majority group. She based her rationale on democratic principles and the real political consequences from a minority group that participates in a referendum initiated by a majority group. Responding to people who were urging blacks to vote in the referendum, Richardson asked a simple question that summed up the essence of her and other voters' position. Why should our constitutional rights be something that has to go on a voting machine? She also warned of the unintended consequences that would result from black voters' participation in the referendum. One consequence was that it would legitimize people's belief that black people's rights were freedoms upon which the white voting majority had a say. Additionally, Richardson argued that if the amendment was defeated, then blacks could not complain about the referendum's outcome because they willingly chose to participate. 
On the day of the referendum, most black voters stayed away from the polls, and the racial segregationists defeated the Charter Amendment. Cambridge was not the first place in which a group of voters used a referendum to determine another group's freedoms. Before and after the Civil War, for example, white men in Wisconsin, New York, Kansas, and Ohio used referendums to prevent black men from having the right to vote. Some 40 years later, during the suffrage movement, men, the vast majority of them white, voted in referendums held around the nation to determine whether women should be granted the right to vote. When I look at the recent referendum and constitutional amendment, votes on gay rights around our country, I'm amazed at how far we've come and how far we still have to go in recognizing human rights of all citizens. The political discourse that legitimizes white men's right to decide if black men and all women should ever have the right to vote died off long ago. Yet now, our political discourse legitimizes the straight majority's use of referendums and constitutional amendments to impose its will over the gay minority. If a constitutional amendment or referendum on gay marriage ends up on New Jersey's ballot this November, New Jerseyans who support marriage equality will have to decide how to respond. One way is by doing what Gloria Richardson and most of the other black voters in Cambridge, Maryland did almost 50 years ago. They can boycott the vote. So, I mean, what, what does that mean? If if the referendum is on the ballot uh, and it's accepted, well, then gays have a right to marriage. And if it's denied, does that change how a gay man or woman, the, the type of relationship? I mean, there are some definitive legal consequences of not being married or not being in a, a binding legal relationship. But the meaning of marriage, I mean, that's what everyone's falling back on. Certainly that's what the Christians are falling back on. As if it's in peril. Does anyone remember what marriage was? Like, the point? I mean, Victorian morals aside, it comes to survival. I mean, that, that's what it was all about. A man would grow up in his family, strive out on his own, claim a piece of land, needs someone to work that land, he would either A, pay someone to do the work, or buy someone to do the work, as human history is concerned. He would buy a woman who would give him children. The women, at a certain acceptable societal age, he would sell off to other men to get married. That's what a dowry is, people. And the boys, he would have work his farm. Like, that's how we survived as a people. If that is the, the heritage of marriage, what the fuck is this sanctity everyone's talking about? You literally, the sanctity of marriage is just buying someone else so that they can give you children so that you can survive. <laughs> that, okay, so the absurdity aside of, of homosexual marriage in that context, let's push that off aside. Let's talk about modern legal consequences. I mean, if, if, if you're in a loving homosexual relationship and your partner is in the hospital and you're not legally family, so you can't legally make those life choices for them or visit them, right? I mean, does that matter? Well, hells yes, it matters. It doesn't matter whether you're married or not. I mean, let's say you've just been living with the same person for seven years. You have an inherent care, an inherent need to look after 
these people. And it doesn't matter whether it's a legal marriage or not. And it doesn't matter if you're homosexual or heterosexual. That doesn't mean anything. All that matters is that you have a relationship with another human being that you want to see to the care of. Now, if it means we need to legalize gay marriage, well, who cares? Do it. It doesn't change your marriage. Never has. Never will. But don't be falling back on the the changing the definition of, of a traditional value of marriage. Because the traditional value of marriage is literally slavery and legal rape. <laughs> That's not romantic. That's not pure. Uh, what, whatever it is you think it may be in your own twisted mind. It had nothing to do with that. It was all about survival. We as a species, well, we've kind of moved past that point. And we like to add meaning onto meaningless things. So now, you know, marriage takes on a completely different definition. And yet we still try to latch on to those 2,000 plus year old morals. As a society, not as individuals. Uh, marriage is at the top of the list. I mean, it, you know, it, it truly is parallel to civil rights. It has nothing to do with anything. If they want to get married, let them get married. Who cares? Constitutional amendment? Why not? I mean, we look at the Constitution as if it's this infallible document. It was written by slave owners. (laughs) I mean, really? Is there a more fallible document? (laughs) I mean, we talk about the... um, Every man is created equal, except those colored people, right? I mean, give me a break. Um, we cannot pick and choose. And this is the, the same you know, argument that we attack Christians on, is that they pick and choose parts of the Bible to adhere to and ignore others that are convenient. Well, that's exactly what we do as Americans in our Constitution. We pick and choose what's convenient for us at the time. Um, let homosexual people get married. It doesn't matter. Make it a constitutional thing, not even a state thing. Just say, well, they're human beings. They want to marry another human being. They're all adults. Okay, done. Goes the same for polygamy. I had that in my show, uh, I think, in the middle of last year. It doesn't matter. Let's move on to the next article here. This is BBC News Asia. Afghan President Hamid Karzai plans talks with Taliban. This is posted 29 January 2012 um, by Quentin Somerville and Bilal Sarwari. The Afghan government is planning to meet the Taliban in Saudi Arabia in an attempt to jumpstart peace talks, the BBC has learned. The landmark meeting will come in the coming weeks before the establishment of a Taliban office in Qadar, according to Western and Afghan officials. The Taliban has refused previously to recognize the government of President Hamid Karzai. Senior officials in Kabul say the Taliban has agreed to the meeting. The militant group contacted by the BBC refuses to comment on the move. The Taliban have so far insisted they would only talk to the U.S. and other allies of the Kabul government. A senior Afghan government official told the BBC, even if the Taliban office is established in Qadar, we will obviously pursue other efforts in the region, including Saudi Arabia and Turkey. He continued, Saudi Arabia has played an important role in the past. We value that and look forward to continued support and contact with Saudi Arabia in continuing the peace process. President Karzai was angered by U.S. and Qari efforts to kickstart the peace process without consulting his government fully. In December, he recalled the Afghan ambassador in Doha, 
a delegation from Kedar, is expected to arrive in Kabul shortly in an attempt to mend fences. Prisoner exchange? As reported by the UK's Daily Telegraph newspaper, a number of Taliban officials have already arrived in Kedar. The delegation includes uh, Seher Mohammed Stanaxi, the Taliban's former deputy foreign minister, and Shabuddin Dilawari, a former ambassador to Saudi Arabia, and Tayeb Aga, a close aide to Taliban leader Mullah Omar. However, details for the establishment of a permanent office have still to be finalized. Michael Stemple, a former EU envoy to Kabul, who was expelled in 2007 for talking to the Taliban, told BBC Radio that the Taliban were confused by the lack of uh, coherence between the Afghan government and the international community. There's a risk that the Taliban sit there and think there's some kind of divide and rule going on from the international side, and that actually no negotiated deal is possible, and that they are far better off maintaining the coherence of their leadership which at the moment, frankly, looks rather more coherent and united than anything on either the Afghan government or international society, said. There are worries that the Taliban are using the political office to raise funds as a ploy to buy time before foreign combat troops leave Afghanistan at the end of 2014. There's also concern that the presidential palace in Kabul, that those negotiations will be primarily focused on an exchange of prisoners between the U.S. and the Taliban. Five senior insurgents are being held at the U.S. detention facility in Guantanamo Bay. America wants the return of three of its citizens held by the Taliban and its affiliates. They include a captured soldier, specialist Bowie Bergadai, and kidnapped U.S. aid worker Warren Weinstein. All are being held in the town of Miransha in the troubled Pakistan province of North Waziristan. Meanwhile, a senior member of, Af of Afghan's High Peace Council remains in the hands of Taliban fighters in Nuristan, the in the remote east of Afghanistan. Shafiella Shafi is considered an influential tribal elder, crucial in mediating between local Taliban commanders and fighters. Shuttle Diplomacy there are divisions within the Taliban leadership, with one faction continuing to insist that all foreign troops must leave before any talks take place. Messages have been sent to the Taliban commanders from the Qaeda Shura, the Taliban's leadership council, warning against dissent. Separately, presidential Karzai's movement is attempting to improve bilateral relations with neighboring Pakistan. Three of the main insurgent groups fighting in Afghanistan are based in Pakistan. Islamabad's support will be vital to any credible peace process. Pakistan's foreign minister, Hina Rabani Kar, will visit Kabul soon. The Afghan government is hopeful that Pakistan will hand over two Taliban leaders from the east of the country, Mali Kabir and Mali Sadrazam as a show of Pakistan's support for the peace process. The government also wants Pakistan to facilitate direct access to the Qaeda Shura. America's special envoy to region, Mark Grossman, has been shuttling between key countries in the region. In Kabul, he said the Taliban must renounce support for international terrorist groups and be prepared to engage with the government if peace talks were to get underway. Western diplomats in Kabul have warned, though, that any eventual political settlement is years away, and that there is little prospect that fighting, which has claimed thousands of Afghan and foreign lives, will end anytime soon. That's the art article. Um, and, and I gotta say, 
you know, on one hand, I could give a damn what these religious fundamental political groups do or think. As long as they are not in the area I live, I don't care. And on the other hand, I, I mean, I read the news, I can see the damage that they're doing in the world. The Taliban is one of those groups that underhandedly supports terrorism in, in different areas of the world, um, and overtly claims to be just peacefully taking care of their own. You know, they ruled Afghanistan, they allowed Al-Qaeda to thrive. Um, it, you know, it, it's sort of one of those things that I'm going to kind of go on a limb here, and I'm going to say it, it's like the, the, the religious right and the Republican Party. They're not literally linked, but they're ideologically linked. If we're going to support as a country and allow that connection to stand, why the fuck do we care if that connection, that similar connection, stands in other places? I mean, it's not like we're not allowing the religious right to have terrorist movements as well. Uh... (laughs) Because they are. They're murdering doctors. They're protesting soldiers' um, funerals. I mean, it's not murderous terrorism, but it is... uh, I mean, shit, I'll go on a limb and I'll say it's still terrorism. It's still damaging to the peace of mind of our nation. Ultimately, if I could have my druthers, the Taliban would be wiped off the planet, and so would the religious right. But I understand that because we live in this vast world, uh, because there are so many ancient cultures and and heritages that people come from, I don't think that's ever going to happen. And that's fine. If people want to cling on to ideas of the past, I don't care. But do it in a way that doesn't influence those around you. Well, that's what the religious right and the Taliban are doing. They're trying to impose their insane ideology on everyone else. That's what I have a problem with. Would we be better if we just, I don't know, had the entire area nuked? Maybe. But if that's the case over in Pakistan, we need to look at that at home too. Because they're here just as much as there. Let's take a short break and jump into the creature feature. Are you looking for music from the 80s and the new wave post-punk and other hits? Jay Nothing, the host of the Metro, will take you back to the 80s with songs that made the decade of me so memorable. Get the weekly updates at RadioFreeSatan.com. And remember, Hail Satan. You know, dogs are different than cats. And hey, what if Jack Nicholson were... Hey, what if We Are the World was sung by the cast of Friends? I think it might go something like this. Hi, everyone. I'm Jay Leno. Anyone remember when I was funny? Eat Doritos. Ladies and gentlemen, Dane Cook. Are you fed up with comedy that's made for the masses? Sick of stand-up comedian hacks with the same old routines that you've heard a thousand times before? Equally tired of shock jocks who equate loudness with laughter? Hello, my name is Reverend Bill M., creator and host of The Devil's Mischief, a show where every week I present a new hour of comedy and novelty of devilish proportions. So tune in to The Devil's Mischief. Visit devilsmischief.com or radiofreesatan.com to download the latest podcast. The Devil's Mischief. 
Carnal Comedy Clips and Netherworld novelty numbers simply not made for the masses. Oh, God. No. Just me. Did you know that after the heart stops beating, the brain can function for well over seven minutes? We got six more minutes to play. Why are you screaming when I haven't even cut you yet? Welcome to Creature Feature. Welcome to another Creature Feature. Today I'm being joined by Nanaya. We're going to be talking about her inclusion in Lilith Awakened, the compilation out now about uh, abused women and how they overcame the abuse uh, through Satanism and... uh, well, let's just say the left-hand path, because I don't think all of it is expressly Satanism. Uh, Nanai, how are you? I'm doing great, Adam. Thank you for having me. Um, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? I really feel it's difficult to find a place to begin when telling about myself, because mm-hmm. I'm more complicated than a linear experience. It's I'm I have a lot of things on my plate. I do a lot of things. I have a diverse and um, complicated background. Well, let's talk about that for a second, if we can. mm -hmm. What's your background about? As far as where I'm from, my heritage. uh, Uh, Well, let's go a little bit about your heritage. I don't want to get into, um, like, location details, just in case you have any stalkers that might listen. (laughs) Oh, no, yeah. (laughs) Well, I was was born abroad and lived um, a lot of my childhood abroad, so... Abroad where? In Singapore. Oh, wow. And so, and then my mother is Thai. So I have a blended culture. Nice. And a pretty blended background of experience, which separates me from a lot of my peers because they've maybe never left the state or, um, you know, they, they haven't lived abroad. It gives you a different perspective on things. So... And it, it changes the way you interact with the world. Absolutely. Do you think that that informed your your, your perspective with uh, Satanism or with uh, the occult in any way? Absolutely. I think being exposed to many different religions and cultures and lifestyles, you become more open to the commonalities as well as the differences. And Um, we were, I come from an affluent background when I was younger. And so I was exposed, like in the home, we had Hindus, we had Muslims, we had uh, Christians, we had Buddhists, you know, we, so from a very young age, I was never indoctrinated in any one particular way of thought. And it made it a lot easier to start searching for the commonalities and things and, and seeing, you know, what the, what the root or the heart of people's intentions are. Do you think that was something that was within you or is that something that your parents helped, um, help, help foster? My parents did not foster it one single bit. I think they were oblivious to it. (laughs) So I would imagine that there was something within me that, that did seek those things and, and seeking kind of purpose and, and what's out there and what's in there and, 
and kind of I think it is probably just the way I engage. Yeah. So if I may be so bold, what <laughs> what did you come to terms with that is out there or that you you believe and you understand uh, the world to be? That's an interesting question too. <laughs> and depending on where you where you look at the journey, um, it, it's meant different things at different times. Um, where I'm at now, um, obviously, I feel like I've kind of found my home um, with within the two organizations, Church of Satan and Temple of the Vampire. So, because they complement not only my rational and materialist uh, point of view with daily matters, but it also addresses uh, with Temple of the Empire the um, the more, I guess you could say, spiritual aspects of myself that I feel are present. See, that's interesting to me. Um, I don't think I've ever run into anyone that has described um, any connection with the TOV as spiritual before. Spiritual was really, for lack of a better word, um, perhaps it would be more in line with things that I would consider to be metaphysical, and this is where it kind of goes into the occult and the magical aspects. Um, to me, there's there's a, a a feeling, a deep connection that kind of stirs me whenever I see cause and effect in play, whenever I tap into that dynamic of um, taking an action upon something and then seeing the result. To me, there's that, there's the, the tension in between those two points. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's for lack of a better term, what I consider spiritual It's the actual action making its impact to create the result that you're looking for. And when you get the correct result, I mean, to me, that's just, it's a wonderful process. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it's simple physics and any physicist could probably tell you how that happens. But um, for me, it's, it's just something that sort of stirs me inside. And it, it I feel something a little bit deeper than, than what my normal five senses will tell me. Nice. So you, when you say something like spiritual, you're maybe basing that uh, terminology on an, you, your background itself, not necessarily so much as by way of explanation. Correct. And also because I'm accustomed to talking using this type of forum, I think I'm accustomed to talking to the New Agers. Mm -hmm. And... So that's a word that they really like to use as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right on. And I'm actually not averse to the word. Um, I just always like to clarify because I, I like to know where people are coming from so I can understand them. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so that's, that's pretty cool. Now, you had mentioned that you were a member of the TOV and the COS. Mm -hmm. uh, when did you first uh, – when were you first exposed to Satanism? To Satanism, I was exposed in junior high school about wow. seventh grade so i was 11 somewhere yeah wow. around 11 years old i was i was a little young i was a couple of years younger than my class but i was i was in junior high i had been doing a research paper on some other paranormal we had this really great library in that school and it had the encyclopedia of 
the occult and parapsychology. Really? And yes, it was amazing. (laughs) So I probably did, I don't know, seven research papers that year just out of those encyclopedias. But in that process, when I was going through those encyclopedias and doing this research, um, I found a reference to the Satanic Bible. And because I was doing a comparative essay on light and dark and the perceptions of good and evil and basically that yin-yang duality, there was a reference. And because I was like, okay, this is supposed to be the dark. So um, (laughs) looking at left-hand path material, well, you know, what do I know? Right, right. So at that point, I hadn't even really gone to church. So I, I didn't really have concepts of that kind of fear-based duality to me when I grew up with, you know, exposure to Taoism and things like that, you know, there's, there's a balance in that. So it didn't occur to me that there was this concept of good and evil to that degree. And I couldn't really understand it on that level. So anyway, I went and found the Satanic Bible and I read it and I was like, you know what, who is this guy? Mm-hmm. Who is this, you know, Anton, what, Levy? (laughs) You know, I didn't know. Right. Never heard of it. And and because I wasn't indoctrinated in in Christian mythos, I didn't really understand the concept of Satan even at that that point. So, and we had moved to the U.S. by then, but – and I would hear about it because we moved to, you know, the Bible Belt, mm-hmm. and but I didn't understand it conceptually. I didn't. I didn't have that daily inbred fear about the devil or Satan or hell. Those just weren't in my lexicon. Mm-hmm. So, I picked up Satanic Bible. It read, you know, Anton's words, and I just was blown away that, you know, here's a guy that wrote a book about all the things that I think and and things that I already do and all the things that made me feel weird, all the things that made me feel strange because I couldn't relate to other people. Especially in the Bible. On that level. Well, absolutely. And even even living in Singapore, it, it's still very different because they're, um, it seems like when you're so entrenched in those cultures and religions, every religion has its way of excusing um, behavior or not taking responsibility right. for behavior. And that just completely didn't jive with me. So picking up the Satanic Bible and, you know, seeing things about essentially personal responsibility and taking the liberties that you have um, within reason. And it made sense to me. It made perfect sense to me. So at 11 years old, I was like, oh, that's great. That didn't last long simply because I didn't know where to go from there. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, I had a lot of people around me that really wouldn't be accepting of it or they would talk down about it or, you know, say, I'm going to hell. And then there was also the one thing that, again, that that feeling that 
Right. I, I needed more. I needed more than that. So, you know, I have the attention span of a fly, so I moved on. <laughs> well, let me and, ask you something. Let me interrupt you if I could. Um, you, you mentioned, I mean, you were, you were 11 years old when you first picked up the Satanic Bible. I know grown men who cannot comprehend <laughs> what is in the Satanic Bible. So <laughs> it's amazing to me. Do you think that you, you fully grasped it at that age? Like 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 you really fully understood it? Or, or do you think that's something you sort of grew into later in life? No, I think I fully understood it. I think I've kind of come full circle and, and gone back to that 11-year-old girl that discovered that and coming uh-huh. back home to it. I think that over the years I became distracted by the seeking of something more and I, I also come from a background where my grandmother great-grandmother um, were the women in in their village that were basically the wise women the medicine women so so I grew up with those types of practices and then it was like oh okay well maybe I'm pagan or maybe I'm this so I kind of did a lot of different things until finally coming back full circle. But I did grasp it. Nice. I just wasn't ready for it. Yeah. I needed I needed to edit out all the other distractions, and I needed to actually go through the process of experiencing them, understanding, learning from them, and then essentially discarding it. And at least then I feel like... I'm not taking anything on faith. I'm not going back to the doctor's words on some faith-based thing. It's because I have tried I, and I, I have I, tested. And I absolutely love that because all things being equal, if you're coming into anything, um, you know, specifically the occult here, if you're coming to any occult practices without an informed experience behind you, they're all as valid as you want them to be. And so there's no way of filtering what what you deem is valid until you've really sort of, you know, dipped your toe in the water and seen how warm it was. I think that's an amazing way of, of approaching it that, that you did individually. I don't know a lot of people who have done it that way. At, at what point did you join the, the Church of Satan? It was probably maybe a year after um, being in TOV, and then... During that process, of course, there's a lot of crossover with membership and getting to know different members. I found the commonality of the members that I seem to resonate with the most happened to also be COS members. And then I was like, you know what? I looked into that, and I was very concerned about joining the COS. And then when I was on, you know, looking through posts on Undercroft or which Satan net now. Right. I didn't really get involved in the LTTD forums, but just reading people's posts on Undercroft, I saw there there is sort of a split and a dichotomy between um, there's sort of a, a very materialistic uh, camp of thought, and then there's, there's another camp of thought that also uh, really recognizes the greater and lesser magic aspects and how to employ those to make a difference. How were you first approached uh, for inclusion into Lilith Awakened? Anne. Anne Oxer sent a Facebook message out to um, a lot of people. I, d- I don't know who was included in that. Right. And she, before I 
this was before I knew that um, it was sort of Josephine's concept first. I didn't realize at the time. And so Anne and I are, are good friends, um, very dear friends. And so she puts this message out that she's looking for women that have stories about rape or abuse or things like that. And, you know, what do I do? I call her up and go, what? You're writing a victim book? What are you doing? <laughs> now, I, I, I was actually reluctant to contribute. Um, she, she knew my story. I had shared that with her. And she felt that it was a value. So I had to sit with that for a minute and, and think about, you know, what is the audience and, and what do they want? And why would you want to put out a, um, you know, this collection of essays about victims? And I didn't, it, it, it took me a little bit to realize that it, it wasn't about that. It was more about sharing the experience and how, how I am different. Um, the fact that I didn't want a victim book, as I would call it, um, really already told me that I thought differently about the subject. I, I think about that subject matter, um, rape, abuse, those types of things, I think about it differently than the average person um, or than many people that I have encountered that have had those experiences in their lives. So I did realize that I did have something um, at least minimally of value and hopefully if, if my um, tone could reach at least one other woman and realize that they could be empowered as opposed to defeated by um, you know, a, either single act or even a chronic act that would victimize them. I, I wanted to be able to do that, so I did go back to Anne, and eventually I did write the essay and get it in at the very last minute. But I was very hesitant and reluctant at first. I will admit that. Nice. Uh, I'm, I'm sure your your confidence in, in your friend Anne had a lot to do with your ultimate decision on, on being included here or, or contributing your story. Um, are you comfortable telling us a little bit about your experience? Sure. Uh, in in the book, Lilith Awakened, my story is called 13-Year-Old Satanist. And that is because when I was 13 years old, I was raped um, by a boy from school. So At I 13. was... I was 13, but keep in mind, uh, my classmates were 15. So the age difference developmentally between 13 and 15 is vast. Yeah. Just those two years. So, you know, kids were having sex at 15. Kids don't normally have sex at 13, but 15, yeah. So there was um, a, a new guy at school. and And this is, you know, again, when I talk about that kind of magical aspect or something that stirs I, I have an ins I have a pretty strong instinct for things like an animalistic instinct for things and he 
was someone who made me very uncomfortable. I just was some, he was someone who I just couldn't stand to be around. I actually would become physically ill in his presence. Everyone else loved him because he was just gorgeous. (laughs) But I couldn't, I couldn't stand him. He just made my skin crawl. And it was every red flag in my body is going up. And so um, the night that it happened, we were at a friend's house. Um, Parents were out of town, you know, kids have the key to the bar. (laughs) So we were just hanging out, drinking, being stupid kids. And, you know, I, I, I felt that feeling. I felt all the hairs in the back of my neck stand up and there was a lot of commotion. There was a lot of screaming and, and everybody started running out of the house and they were screaming, the cops are coming. And, and of course, the first thing you do at that age is run. And, um, I, I was held back. He had, he had grabbed my arm and kept me there and he tied me up and he said crazy things like, because everybody knew I was a virgin and it was sort of a big deal to keep me a virgin. <laughs> so, um, you know, all, all my male friends kind of always stuck up for me like that. So, because they knew I was just a kid, mm-hmm. but this, this guy didn't care. I was found by my friends. Um, I just wasn't even really cognizant of that I that I remember everything in detail. So, I think I'm losing you a little bit. The, the volume is going down dramatically. I think I, I may have put you on speaker. Hang on. Okay. Is that better? Oh yeah, infinitely. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's all right. So he had held you back and tied you up. Uh huh. Um, I'm not entirely sure. We, we really need to go into the rest of it. I, I think it's self-evident. Yes. Except for the fact that during the process, I just sort of checked out. You know, I, I disconnected um, from from the actual physical act itself. And um, But in doing that, in concentrating on everything else but him so intensely, um, I... I eventually had triggers, had really weird triggers for things like peach potpourri or the color yellow and things like that, that I didn't realize that I became avoidant of later, but we can probably address that at a later point. Wow. Um, Did you ever, I mean, what was your reaction to that as as a 13 year old? A a lot of denial, (laughs) I think. I think the the denial aspect actually helped me. You know, I kind of stuffed it and I was like, and I would rationalize. I rationalized everything um, just as a self-defense mechanism. Mm-hmm. So I rationalized, okay, this, this only happened to my body. You know, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't really damage anything. He didn't take anything. I wasn't using my hymen. So, you know, so I would, I would do these things and kind of talk myself out of the pain by making it very clinical and making it very, um, physical as opposed to emotional. So I would 
anytime I would have an emotional response, I would rationalize with myself to avoid feeling the pain of it. And I think that actually that benefited me. I'm, I'm glad I did that because I don't know that I'll ever really know the same kind of emotional pain that some other women do. And I, I don't envy, you know, having the ability to go to that deep, painful place. So I, I think I protected myself from that. It, from an outsider, it, it seems like a very actualized practice in order to to protect yourself in that way of, 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 of rationalizing um, or compartmentalizing the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think, I mean, at 13, that, that, that's such a young age. Do, what do you think helped you do that? I mean, I, I, I'm sure you saw it as, as just something that every 13 year old would do in that given situation, maybe, but I mean, it certainly isn't. Um, what do you think? I, I don't, I don't think that every, th- I didn't think even at the time I knew I was different. I I knew I thought differently, um, and I mean, for you, uh, mm-hmm. being a young woman like that, um, did you ever consider what might have informed you to be able to do that? You, your, your family history, the, the heritage that you came from, uh, uh, your advanced understanding. Uh, um, I mean, wh- what do you think it was that, that that gave you the upper hand in that, so that you could get through it? I don't know how to answer that question, Adam. I really don't. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it was that caused me to go through that process and do the self-talk. I It just seemed like it was in my nature to do it. It wasn't something that was taught to me. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that there was some life experience that might have um, supported that, but I think that I've I can't remember ever not being analytical about everything that I think, do, and feel. Nice. I think that's just how I. I think that's just how I process, and it made sense to do it at the time. So it, it seemed like seemed like the logical thing. Yeah. Um, sometimes Dryden Shahara says I'm Vulcan. <laughs> <laughs> so. Did you ever seek vengeance in any form? You know what? Other people took care of that. Um, I wasn't involved, and I really was very oblivious to it happening. But um, from what I understand, he ended up in a ditch and then in a hospital, and then his family was out of town. So that's all I know. Um, Somebody else took that vengeance for me. For me, vengeance was just getting on with my life, I guess. I I didn't feel a need for vengeance. I didn't want to re-engage. Yeah. You know, it was it was done. It was over. I had, you know, it, he wasn't present in my life at that point. You know, the minute after it happened and he walked away, there was, he wasn't part of my life anymore. Huh. So, why go back to it? At least that was my process at the time. How would you like the, the reader to, to take this? I, I mean, I would imagine you knew what this 
book was going to be, you knew the target audience, I would imagine. Um, with your particular story, were you when you were writing it, were you, I don't know, maybe writing it with a specific take in mind, or were you just sort of dictating what happened? I did. I, I did have a specific intention. Um, I wanted to convey to the reader that, you know, like I said, I was... I was victimized, but I'm not a victim. Mm -hmm. And that really essentially sums it up is for me. And, and again, I, and I do put a disclaimer in the essay that this was not a chronic abuse situation. So responding to a chronic abuse situation would be very differently, uh, or excuse me, very different than having this isolated incident. That's that different dynamic that I, mm-hmm. I can't even address. But being that it was just a singular event, you know, it was it was a moment. It was a moment in a series of many, many moments in our lives. And my hope would be that a reader could take from that the intention that it's okay to leave it in the past and really leave it in the past and recognize that it doesn't dictate how you proceed with the rest of your life, that everything that you choose to do should be an act of your own will, not a tainted um, result of a singular incident or singular event in your life. And I wouldn't want anyone that has an experience of a sexual attack or some sort of trauma like that to walk away with that dictating how they engage with their the rest of their life. I think that's that's unfortunate that many people do. And there was aspects to my life, you know, that um, I didn't realize at the time. Like like we mentioned, the triggers. Like yeah. I didn't know I didn't know that some things that I was doing and choosing to do was was a result of you know not wanting to trigger myself and not wanting to go into that place of pain and memory. Yeah, I mean, I was I was going to say that 13 is a very informative age. And I, that that period of, of just prepubescence, it, it has to leave a dramatic mark on the way you would maybe interact with the world and just the way you express yourself. Um, I think if there can be a best way to take that that experience and move on, you know, maybe this is one of the best ways. Um, I think it it actually taught me um, to appreciate the good more. I, I feel like having something so atrocious and um, so destructive in that moment happen to you really makes you appreciate everything else. It makes you appreciate how wonderful every other moment or relationship or experience can be. So, and maybe again, that might've been another self-defense thing for me to, to look for the positive and, um, but it, it served me in so many ways. And that's sort of the outlook I have on life is that, kind of great optimistic wonder about so many things that I, that I want to experience and I 
try to take something positive away from everything. And I, I do think that having such a negative experience gives me gives me that boundary, which allows me to enjoy everything else even more. Well, I, I do have to say, it, it takes a particularly informed human being in order to articulate it that way and, and to move in their life. I mean, you know, we're really just surrounded in this world by victims, and so it, when you find <laughs> someone that, that's capable and, and overcomes and actually uses such a atrocious moment in a positive way, it's really confounding and, um, uh, I don't know, maybe even inspirational. Uh, I think that's fantastic. I do want to say that I'm very, very glad that I did decide to participate in the book, and I'm very glad that I was able to read the stories from the other women. The The stories uh, touched me, all of them, and touched me in different ways. I didn't realize that the book's scope was going to be expanded, but I was so glad to read Hydra's uh, essay about body dysmorphic disorder. Yeah. I'm so glad that that topic was addressed. I do think that it works well in the book because um, it is one way that that the aftershocks of traumas can manifest. And it's certainly something that does happen to women. They do lose a lot of their self-esteem and their feeling of self-worth. And I think the book addresses that. I think it, I think it shows hope to the reader, or if if they can find relevance in it and realize that it's not a crippling thing. You you can move on. Your life is yours to live. Your life is yours to take control of. You know, you can always move away from the traumas that affect you and become strong, successful, and as powerful as you choose to be. And I think that that is the biggest hope for this book for me. And I'm so, so glad that Josephine um, and Anne collaborated to create this. I'm yeah. very happy to be part of it. Well, I have to say, in, in, the, in the interviews that I've conducted as of yet, um, and in the stories that I've heard, I do sort of feel a little bit awkward uh, being the one to deliver these or, or, or to help deliver these uh, in this particular medium. But I, th I think it's so incredibly important. And it's it's easy for, for you women to stand in a position of of self-actualization um, to to express that what is possible and explain how you had experienced it and how you got through it. I don't think it's as easy for everyone else. Um, and the harshness of reality in my mind states that necessarily it shouldn't be easy for everyone else. But for those that do excel in life, for those that are inherently capable I, I think you know this is one of those magical tomes that can help someone realize potential mm -hmm. and that in and of itself 
is probably more useful than any psychiatrist or or anything else in the entire world. Knowing that you can make it out of the darkest of places, the most difficult of situations. They may be within yourself or without of yourself, but it is always possible. And if you have it within yourself, that you should follow suit like the the very strong women in in Lilith Awakened and yourself. Uh, Thank you so much for sharing your story. I do truly appreciate it. I know my audience is... Um, appreciative of your time. Uh, wow, I, I know we could go on for hours, but we're going to have to end it at some point. <laughs> Thank you. I know. Thank you, Adam. I really appreciate having the opportunity to talk about it. Absolutely. Uh, until we chat again, and I hope we do chat again. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. And that's going to do it for another show. I hope you enjoyed it. I would love to hear from you. Visit the website 9centspodcast.com and send your correspondence to info at 9centspodcast.com. Let me know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. You can visit the SatanNet, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, or MySpace page for 9 cents and get updated on weekly topics. Listen to the show at RadioFreeSatan.com or download the show Monday nights via my RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com. You can also subscribe via iTunes by searching 9 cents, and don't forget to leave a rating and or comment. If you'd like to learn more about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. And if you'd like to hear other fine satanic voices and musical personalities, visit RadioFreeSatan.com, and online streaming radio station. Once again, thank you for joining me, and as always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell, and until next week, Hail Satan!